Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move, or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at clearme.com slash Peter and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide. Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution. 
personalized M&Ms. Just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors, name, and even their photo printed right on some M&Ms. It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome aboard another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. I just traveled to one of America's most underrated cities. Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's a city with a rich and deep history, intersecting with one of the more legendary roads west, Route 66. It has a vibrant music and food scene, and it's also considered America's most philanthropic city. Imagine a destination that will now pay you $10,000 just to move there and work remotely. I'll speak with Ben Stewart about the innovative Tulsa Remote Program. And do you remember a song you probably grew up singing? This land is your land. We'll talk about the man who wrote that iconic song, Woody Guthrie, and the real surprise lyrics you didn't know about. Tulsa was also home to one of the great tragedies in America, the 1921 Race Massacre. A hundred years later, the city is coming to grips with that history and immersed in a reconciliation that's been a long time coming. I'll speak with Michelle Place from the Tulsa Historical Society about that story and the special discoveries that she made. Then, switching gears, are you a member of an airline frequent flyer program? then chances are you belong to at least one program, probably two programs. And are you out there earning more miles each day by either flying or more likely through your credit card purchases? Either way, the odds are also very strong that you're sitting on a lot of miles you've been unable to redeem. So how do you actually use your miles? I'll speak with Steve Belkin, the author of Mileage Maniac, to get his strategy. First up, it's Tulsa, Oklahoma. I first went there in 1972, and I've been going back ever since. And now, the city wants you to come as well. Ben Stewart has the details, and an offer you might not want to refuse. Let me tell you something about Tulsa you probably didn't know. It's probably America's most philanthropic city. People would never guess that in a million years until they get here. And in fact, I never knew that until I talked to my next guest, who is named as Ben Stewart, from the George Kaiser Family Foundation, but you're operating something called Tulsa Remote. Now, let me put this in perspective, Ben. Way before the pandemic, you were doing this. Your timing could not have been better. When you think about it, explain Tulsa Remote. Well, thank you for having me on today, Peter. Tulsa Remote is a really innovative program which seeks to recruit diverse and talented individuals from across the country to Tulsa. We bring individuals with jobs to our community in all kinds of areas of of work, including technology jobs, business services, even have Japanese opera singers and Harlem Globetrotters a part of our program with the goal. Well, what the deal is, Please move to Tulsa. We'll give you $10,000 to move here. See, that's the lead of the story, right? <laughs> come to Tulsa, get ten grand. Live Except here. that people come and they love it. We've had over 90% of our members come and stay. And that's what's really appealing to us is the community we're building here. And when did you start this? It started in the fall of 2018. See, I'm saying before the pandemic. Yep. Have you seen your numbers skyrocket since? So absolutely. In the first 90 days in 2018, we saw over 10,000 applications. We had nearly 70 people move during calendar year 2019. During calendar year 2020, we saw nearly 400. And this year, we're already on path to have 1,000 members by the end of the year. So let's talk about that. 1,000 members a year, that's a million bucks right there. Who's, 10 million. Now you know why I failed math in high school. <laughs> Who's funding this? So the program is currently funded by the George Kaiser Family Foundation, and we're entering into a pay-for-success contract with the state of Oklahoma, which will 
provide a reimbursement for that $10,000 over the course of 30 months. So it'll be self-sustaining? It will, except that the foundation still covers the cost of the programming and the staff. Right. So more or less, it's still, it'll operate. Exactly. So, all right, you have the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker coming, right? We have everyone in between. And what happens when they get here? Because I'm going to assume, and tell me if I'm wrong, I'm going to assume that uh, nobody really knows or understands Tulsa until they get here. I mean, so it's a, a great lot of preconceived point. notions. It's a great point, and we've obviously had an outsized share of headlines about the $10,000 number, and then we welcome people to Tulsa, and they love it. The uh, community of Tulsa has been a warm and welcoming place. The fact that we have the largest public-private park that opened the same year as the program's launch at Gathering Place, the Arts District, which was created... Well, let's stop right there. Yeah. The Gathering Place, I was just there, the largest privately funded park in the nation... I mean... A half a billion dollar public-private investment into the city's riverfront. And something I also learned about Tulsa, you have more than 120 parks anyway. And over 100 miles of trail. Who knew? Now, here's something else most of my audience doesn't know. Oklahoma, as a state, has more shoreline... Than than, any other state. Than any other state in America. Now, let's put that in perspective. A lot of that's man-made lakes. Absolutely. I mean, let's call it what it is, right? You're not, not bordering on an ocean here. But the point is, you've got a lot of lakes. We have a lot of lakes and a lot of recreation spots. So now, where are you from? I'm originally from Tulsa. Okay, but then you left. I did. I did. I had the opportunity to live in Argentina, in California, and then I moved back about 12 years ago. And what brought you back? I think the ability to have an impact in my hometown was significant. And to see Tulsa as a city on the move, a city that innovating, entrepreneurial, and, and reinvesting in itself. Now, does this have an end point? So... I think that we're just at the beginning still. I think we're seeing, you know, we've seen our thousandth member move. We, on average, have 1.7 people move with a member. And we see this as a burgeoning and important milestone for our community. All right. So for anybody listening to the show who, like, maybe wants to move, what do they have to do? So join us at TulsaRemote.com. Take a look at what we have to offer and then fill out an application and we will get back to you within a week and set up a time hopefully for an interview and then wait for the check well come on so we've had over 60,000 people apply since our program inception Um, we admit about 5% so we're very selective okay so who are you looking for so absolutely we're looking for people with really interesting backgrounds with with good jobs our average income is around 100k Um, And we want people who are investing in their community. And we want Tulsa to be that community. Would I qualify? Well, Peter, I think you have a remote job. (laughs) I already have a remote job. (laughs) So, yes, we'd love to to have you sign up. All right, what's the website again? TulsaRemote.com. My thanks to Ben. You probably remember the song. You may have sung it when you were younger. This land is your land. This land is my land. Okay, that's about as much as I'm going to sing. But Dina McLeod, the executive director of the Woody Guthrie Center, has the real story about the writer, the man, and his real impact on American culture. She's the executive director of the Woody Guthrie Center, and her name is Dina McLeod. Hi, Dina. Hi. 
You heard the introduction. I mean, most people know, you know, the Bob Dylans, and they know, but the Woody Guthrie part, they don't necessarily place him here. You know, and Woody was an Okie. He he was born and raised in Okima, Oklahoma. So we brought his archive back home to Oklahoma to his native land. And uh, you know, and in, in your introduction, when you're talking about the things that people don't know about Tulsa, I mean, I, I've said this at tourism meetings before that you know, whenever whenever Tulsans think about what all we have to offer. We've been this kind of hidden treasure, and now the word's out. And so we need to be ready for all of these guests who are coming in to see us. Look, you've been doing a Woody Guthrie Festival for, what, 24 years now? Um, Yes, I was on the founding board that started the Woody Guthrie Festival in his hometown of Okima and uh, booked and produced concerts and programs for the event for its first 17 years. And we just celebrated the 24th anniversary of Woody's birthday in his hometown. Lots of music, lots of education. It's, it's just like a huge dysfunctional family reunion. It's the best thing ever. You know, one of the very first songs I learned to sing in summer camp, and I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. This land is your land. This did, land is my land. Oh, but did you sing all the verses? No. Oh, uh, see, those are my favorite. Those verses that they Which cut out of I the sing along. As I was walking, I saw a sign there, and on the sign it said "private property," and on the other side it didn't say nothing. That side was made for you and me. And then the verse about in the shadow of the steeple, I saw my people at the relief office. I saw my people as they stood there hungry. I stood there wondering, was this land made for you and me? So in the we didn't grow up learning that no, one. No, those are those are the the questioning. Um, you know, the the capitalist system, um, questioning the way that we share these beautiful resources that we have. And that's what really Woody was doing. He was reporting about all of the things that he saw as he traveled the United States. Uh, it was a it was a report from the road, but he also was reporting on the things he was seeing as far as the people and how they were being treated and the way that we were keeping people from equal opportunities and equal access. Isn't it ironic that I grew up thinking this was a song that celebrated everything that was great about America, when in fact it was questioning everything that needed to be fixed? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's a protest song. It's one of the first protest songs that comes out and just blatantly states the fact that we have so much. We are so blessed in this country. And the question is, how are we sharing those blessings? In fact, the original title of This Land is Your Land was God Blessed America. Hmm. Little known fact. I have all kinds of woody trivia in my no. brain. <laughs> well, since you are the repository of all things Guthrie, yes. what's in there? Um, so Woody wrote over 3,000 songs in his lifetime. So we've got all of the songs. Uh, only about 10% of those have ever been put to music. Woody wrote words. The words were what he was writing. Can I ask the obvious question? Yes. Are you doing that now? Um, Nora Guthrie, his daughter, does invite artists to come in and put music to Woody's words. Uh, the first full album release was uh, Billy, Gr- Billy Bragg and Wilco and the Mermaid Avenue albums. But there's there have been... a great variety of artists who've come and co-written with Woody, uh, Jackson Brown, Tom Morello, the Dropkick Murphys, uh, Del McCoury, just all, and that's, that's what she wants to do. She wants to bring in different voices, different styles of music, and let them 
put Woody's words to music. What's the biggest surprise, other than the fact that you just shared with me he wrote 3,000 songs and only 10% were ever put to music? Mm-hmm. What's the other big surprise for people who would come to this to the center? Um, you know, I think that most people are just stunned by his visual artwork. Um, Woody was a an enormously creative person, multifaceted. And he created some of the most incredible pieces of visual art that people aren't aware of. And I think that whenever they first step into the gallery and see those on display, I know that it just surprises them and they have a lot of questions. And actually, he was a visual artist before he was a musical artist. Another surprise we didn't Mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. And what's the thing that surprises you the most? Um, From the beginning, um, I knew Woody as an activist. I knew Woody as an artist. What surprised me the most about the collection and about what he left, left us to study was how romantic he was. Um, he wrote so many things about love and grace and spirituality. It's the surprising part of Woody that most people don't realize. My thanks to Dina. Next, 1921 has a special and tragic significance in American history, the Tulsa Race Massacre. Michelle Place has a story to tell about that time and how Tulsa still tells and teaches that story today. My next guest knows a little bit about Tulsa. She's the executive director of the Tulsa Historical Society and Museum, Michelle Place. Michelle, welcome. Thank you. You know, you've been here for quite some time because you came from from Little Rock, but you moved to Tulsa because you married an oil guy, right? That's true. That's true. But I'm always amazed by my friend's lack of understanding of geography and of culture and history. And I say this to my friends to their face because even even this week, they would call me and say, where are you? I said, I'm in Tulsa. And they go, why? Or what's that? And until you get here, you don't get it. But there's such great history here. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I talk to lots of people, particularly from uh, either coast, and often they're disappointed towards the end of their trip because they haven't seen any buffalo, or they haven't seen a teepee, or they haven't seen any Indians. And so I can say, well, actually, you probably have seen Indians. It's just that they were blue-eyed and blonde-haired. So you can't paint with a broad brush there necessarily and those buffalo and teepees not just sort of show teepees are also in the state of Oklahoma but they're a little bit farther west from here we're known as green country and most people would never expect to see green in Oklahoma exactly we're the foothills of the Ozarks exactly so but in terms of the history you know we've just gone through the centennial if you will of something that most people didn't even know was in their history books because it wasn't. You know, the massacre in 1921 uh, uh, in Tulsa. Uh, and and you know, I, I was upset when I found out about it because I, I didn't know, I didn't even know about it. I mean, how could I not have known about that, mm-hmm. right? But there's so much more to that. And there's so much more about all of Tulsa's history in your museum. There is so much more to 
Tulsa and to Oklahoma's history. Um, a lot of people think that they know about Oklahoma because they know of the land runs of 1889 and 1891. Well, that was in Oklahoma Territory, which is the western half of the state. And the eastern half of the state, where Tulsa is located, is Indian Territory, and that's where those, what we know as the five civilized tribes in the Trail of Tears were moved out of the southeastern United States into Oklahoma, or what will eventually become the state of Oklahoma. And so that's um, where our I think we have a confluence of a lot of different cultures. First, that Native American culture and those uh, Native peoples who were here even before the five civilized tribes uh, that we need to talk about. And then Oklahoma in the early uh, 1900s were seen by African Americans as a place of promise where they could escape the Jim Crow out of the southeastern United States. And essentially develop their own communities as well. Exactly. We know of at least 50 towns or villages, settlements, if you will, that were set up all over the state of Oklahoma. Now, many of those smaller villages were uh, didn't last very long because there was that idea, that desire to be in community, particularly for education and also for economic promise. And so that's why we had um, lots of uh, African Americans basically migrate to what becomes the state of Oklahoma in 1907. But it was 1901 and 1905 and that discovery of oil that really made a difference in Oklahoma. And it really defined it. It did define it. What it also did was bring predominantly persons of European descent. Let's just call them white settlers. You know, it's the time of manifest destiny um, and it, moving westward, if you will. And it's this whole idea of owning land. Now, that was also the same idea, whether you were Native American or these African Americans. It was the desire of land ownership and to define your own destiny and live out your hopes and dreams. And then came 1921. And then came 1921. Um, the Greenwood community, also known as Black Wall Street, um, is just on the northeast corner of downtown Tulsa today. It's readily accessible, it's walkable, um, but this was an area, it was the wealthiest African-American community in the country at the time. And there are lots of reasons for that. One was um, many of the people who came to Greenwood to settle in there had been educated back in the East. They had gone to what we call historically black colleges and universities and become professionals. They were physicians, pharmacists, dentists, accountants. But then there was also another tier of um, of proprietors, of um, owning your own business, whether it was a tailor shop or uh, a grocery store or uh, theaters, also a number of educators, certainly. And then there was also another um, tier of economic uh, success, those who were domestics for all of the rich white oil families who lived south of the tracks, which defined the 
African-American community from the white community. And so a lot of these domestics would go and work. They would earn a salary. And Thursday evenings was generally their night off. And so they would come back to Greenwood and they had their pay in hand. So that's one of the ways that money was funneled into the Greenwood district. And then because of Jim Crow, because of segregation, the residents of Greenwood could not spend their dollars outside of the Greenwood district. So the grocery store then paid um, the beauty shop who then went to the movies who then um, had need of an attorney. The money stayed in The money stayed in Greenwood and it said that every dollar changed hands at least 19 times before it left the community. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But then let's go back again to 1921. 1921. And I'll make you a bet that when you came here from Arkansas, you didn't know about Greenwood. I did not know about Greenwood. I had lived here for 15 years, but let's talk about, um, since I am from Little Rock, I was born September of 1957. So the Little Rock Nine, Little Rock Central had always been a part of my DNA. I was bust when I was in the ninth grade. My family has been up close and personal with race relations all of my life. So to come to Tulsa, I had just, I'd been here 15 years, worked in oil and gas, and then I got this job at the Historical Society. We were in the midst of building a permanent museum, and um, this is March of 2001. I pick up the phone, and it's a reporter from New Zealand who wants to talk about the Tulsa race riot. And you said what? I took a deep breath, and I, in my best Southern manners, said, well, let me find the right person for you to talk to. (laughs) And because he was New Zealand, and this was before cell phones, it it was like, will you call me back in a couple hours? Sure. So we hung up the phone. I turned to the other employee, the executive director. His name was Clayton Vaughn, and he was a retired news broadcaster, longtime Tulsan. And I said, he wants to know about the Tulsa race riot. And in that blink of an eye, my mind had gone to 1968, which was my frame of reference because of my experiences. And so Clayton said, you don't know the story, do you? And so he told me. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. You were just coming up to speed on what had happened back in 1921. Exactly. Uh, I was just working one day. This was about a week after I had first learned about the riot, what we now call the massacre. And um, one of our longtime volunteers, his name was Dick Warner, and he had been a part of that commissioned report and had worked um, really very diligently on it. And so he walks into my office and he puts down a cardboard box in the middle of my desk and he tells 
me these are the Tulsa Historical Society's archives of the Tulsa race riot. That was the term that we used at the time. He said, guard them with your life. And we made nice. He left the office. I began to look through the box, and honestly, I could not get through them. I had never seen photographs that were that horrific ever in my life. And so it really took me about three or four days uh, to get through those photographs and then uh, ultimately to read the report. But I am grateful for my experience, my family, that I had grown up in Little Rock, that I had been up close and personal with race relations to truly understand the magnitude of that collection. And still today, the staff of the Historical Society and Museum, we have done our very best to care for this collection as technology advanced. It was the very first collection that we scanned. And so now... And what was in it? Well... Other than photographs. Yeah. Well, that's the majority of it uh, were photographs. There were, there are very few artifacts because basically everything everything was burned. So there are no memories from families, portraits, school books, family furnishings. All of that was completely decimated. So really all we have are photographs post of the actual event of the destruction. And so what our staff made a commitment to do was to make them available globally because my phone continued to ring from the London Times, from Tokyo, from Paris. Um, I was asked to be a part of a team from Tulsa to go and speak internationally at a peace conference in Switzerland. Uh, I did that for four years uh, to tell Tulsa's story. And you're still telling it. Which I believe, as do many others, uh, is that the education to tell the story is the most important thing. When we first started talking about the story as a community, what I heard from the residents of Greenwood or North Tulsa was don't stop at just the destruction to tell the story of the resurgence of Greenwood, of its heyday really in um, through the depression into the 1940s into the 1950s. And that's still happening today. That is still happening today. Of course, um, really the demise of Greenwood came about with integration. Several things happened. Um, As the Jim Crow laws went away and um, residents of Greenwood, particularly the younger people, could take their dollars and go shop on Main Street. They could go to the new mall, which was out in the suburbs. They could go to a movie theater, which was not in the Greenwood district. And also at this time, um, I think those proprietors, entrepreneurs were aging out. Um, They didn't want to run the grocery store anymore. Their children had either uh, done something else professionally or perhaps they had even moved and left Tulsa. And so those um, businesses began to decline. And then here comes urban renewal through the 1960s. And so today we have Interstate 244, which truly runs through the heart of Greenwood. And the lessons learned here? Lessons learned here. Um, um, Be careful with buildings that you tear down. Uh, We need to commit 
to preservation. Um, we also need to make sure that all areas of our community are supported in the ways that they need to be supported, whether it's health care, uh, whether it's roads, infrastructures, internet, lighting, uh, police, and safety. And, and I think when we say you have to learn the lessons of the past, those are great lessons that we can learn. Also, we learn the lessons of people who in the midst of the most horrible things that could happen to them, find the courage to move into the next moment and into the next day and into the next year and dream really big dreams. So that's the lesson that I and others want to teach. And of course, to stay in Tulsa. Of course, to stay in Tulsa. You know, I came here in 1987 and I began working in the downtown area and it really was deserted to a large degree. But you stuck with it. But I stuck with it. Oh, Tulsa is an amazing place. Michelle Place, Tulsa's an amazing place. Michelle's an amazing place. My thanks to Michelle. And now, attention all mileage junkies. There are 23 trillion, yes, you heard that correctly, 23 trillion unredeemed airline frequent flyer miles. And you're probably sitting on some of them. Steve Belkin, the author of Mileage Maniac, has accumulated 40 million miles himself. He's got the real numbers and some strategies for you. Um, I've been looking forward to talking to my next guest for quite a while, simply because one of the questions that inevitably comes up in every conversation I have is, hey, Peter, how many miles do you have? Because we're all mileage junkies. And I'll tell you how many miles I have. I've been told that there are only about five or six people who have more miles than I do. Well, you're about to meet one. <laughs> I, I, have, I have about 23 million miles, but my next guest has got me beat by a long, by a long margin. Uh, he's got 40 million miles and counting. He just did a book called, appropriately titled, Mileage Maniac, and his name is Steve Belkin, and he joins us now from Cozumel in Mexico. Hey, Steve. Peter, not bad for a rookie, 23 mil. Not bad for a rookie. Thank you for calling me a rookie. I'll still talk to you. <laughs> but, but here's the question. I've always, you know, I go back to the days back in 1981 uh, when the mileage programs were started, and... You know, they were generally regarded at that point as one of the most innovative marketing techniques or ideas or innovations of the 20th century. And I tended to agree with them at that point. And they were designed to truly reward you for your loyalty. But here's a question I'm, I'm not just going to ask you, but I'm going to ask my viewers and my listeners. And that's this. Are you a member of a mileage program? And almost everybody raises their hand. And then I'm going to say, are you a member of more than one? And they raise their hand. How many, like three three or four, the hands stay up. So much for loyalty. We figured out a situation now where everybody, and that includes me, is trying to game the system only because we can. And we've become mileage junkies, mileage addicts. Is it fair to say that you're a mileage junkie? I would, it's fair to say that I was. I would say in 2021, I'm not anymore. I, 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 uh, I kicked. I kicked the addiction. <laughs> so you no longer get miles when you fly? Are you kidding me? For a good reason, because the, you know, the programs are called loyalty programs, Peter. But today, in 2021, there's no award charts left. There's dynamic pricing, so you're never really sure how much uh, your miles were. So for me, it's no fun um, chasing something, chasing after something that doesn't have a fixed target. So for me, the programs have become treachery programs, and uh, and I'm out. I got you. Well, I want to get back to that in a second, because that's an important point I want to discuss. But I really first want to discuss how you got to 40 million miles in the first place. You know, that's not easy to do. I know this. You have to stay up very late at night 
and get up very early in the morning to try to figure out how to beat the airlines at their own game playing by their rules. Yeah, well, and it was especially difficult in the 80s and 90s, Peter, because there, there wasn't such a thing as uh, manufactured spending or um, going to the U.S. Mint or um, you know credit card bonuses. You really had to fly and put your butt in the seat to uh, to earn a mile back then. So the 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 really the the it was much easier to game the system because there weren't so many moving parts like there are today. Right. I mean, I remember the very first days of like the United Airlines mileage program. You had to have a little coupon, a paper coupon that they stapled to your ticket. You remember that? <laughs> I remember it, and my Xerox machine remembers it. <laughs> So tell me this. I mean, we're not just talking about frequent flyer miles at airlines. We're talking about hotel points as well. Yeah. Uh, hotel points were often a, uh, a nice a sneaky backdoor uh, to get into airline programs, either that you couldn't become a member of or you just didn't have um, uh, you just didn't, didn't do enough flying with them to make it worthwhile. So, yeah, hotel programs were a good um, were a good gaming of the system, um, especially for airlines like Emirates and uh, Cathay Pacific before they had be, be, become part of alliances. So that, that The hotel programs were your, your magic key. Now, I've always told everybody that if you hold on to your miles, you're an idiot because <laughs> the airlines devalue them on a, on a frequent basis, uh, they, and they can do that. It's part of their agreement with you. Um, and, you know, I don't trust the airlines as airlines, so why would I trust them as banks? I'm not accruing interest by holding on to miles, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you should, you know, when people hear that I have 40 million, it's like, no, I don't, I don't have 40 million sitting in the bank. I, I earned and redeemed 40 million over uh, about a 20 year period. So I, I never was sitting on more than a few million miles at a time. The, the mantra is definitely, as you said, um, earn and burn, earn and burn, don't earn and save. Okay. So having said that, in your experience, even today, who would you say has the best mileage program as an airline? Man, I, I hate to be the the resident hater after uh, having earned so many miles, but there's there's not one U.S. program that I would advise um, sticking your miles into. Again, they, they they're all slowly but surely eliminating their award charts, and and the price and the pricing of an award is all over the place. So you know it's 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 hard to, it's hard to chase after something that that's a moving target. Um, I'd say from an international program standpoint, the award charts for programs like Korean Airlines are still back in the 90s. They're still incredibly good values, but those programs are extremely difficult to earn points in, and there's not a lot of ancillary ways to do it, like hotel programs or credit cards. I hear you. So then, for somebody listening to this program, is it even worth to be a member anymore? Uh, Because we're all addicted to it. We either have affinity credit cards that are linked to those programs, or we're, we're getting other perks from other credit cards, or we're actually unbelievably flying on a plane. Yeah. Um, geez, I don't, I, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm concerned that I'm going to become the Debbie Downer of your, uh, of your program here. I, I, but I think that the, what I would tell your, your, your members are that if, you, if you're looking to fly domestically and in economy class, don't bother with the programs you know, go to Spirit or Frontier and get a, a a cheap ticket and go exactly where you want, when you want. Because if you play the mileage game, you're always going to be having to either do two stops or fly two days earlier than you wanted to uh, or pay a lot more miles to get the flights that you're actually looking for. So I, I don't see a lot of upside for uh, domestic economy. If you're flying international business, 
Um, it might be worth sticking around, but again, only if you have an incredible flexibility. Um, you're, you're willing to have travel plans that can fluctuate two or three days on either side of the date that you that you think you want to travel, because it's very rare that you can hit the you know hit the jackpot with um, with the dates, times, and the low level low level redemption awards that that you seek for that kind of uh, travel. But you did hit the jackpot. You got to 40 million miles and you spent 40 million miles. So what I really want to talk to you about, because I, I do want you to entertain me with these stories, because you really are the catch me if you can of, uh, of frequent flyer milers. Uh, how did you do it? Wow. Let me count the ways. Um, in the in the late 80s, the way to do it was to um, hire other people to fly for you. Uh, under your name, because in the late 80s, there, there was no um, ID checks at the airport. So you could have 20 people fly under your name, perfectly legal. The air, I mean, the, the airlines didn't say that the person's name had to actually be the person who was flying. So it was a huge loophole that the, I don't think the airlines thought of it as a loophole. I don't think that they ever figured that anybody would ever have the balls to do it let alone with 20 people. And you did it with, uh, if I read my read your book correctly, by the way, the name of the book is Mileage Maniac. You were, hired, you were hiring unemployed improv actors and disabled Thai masseuses? That's who was flying for you? So yeah, the unemployed um, actors were flying back and forth between, uh, uh, in 88, they were flying back and forth between New York because of a triple miles promotion. In 99, they were flying back and forth to Vegas in first class because there was like a 25,000 mile bonus promotion. And in 2001, I had 20 uh, time masseuses, disabled time masseuses and, um, uh, and rice farmers from northern Thailand flying back and forth between two northern Thai, Thailand cities that were 18 minutes apart by, by air. So, yeah, that was it was a, it was a cool it was a cool labor pool. I probably had the only um, mileage mule union in the uh, in the world. And it wasn't fraud. No, none of it was fraud. So at one point, how many different membership accounts did you have? Wow, that's a good question. Let's see, 20, 100. Uh, probably over time, I've probably had about 140 different accounts that I've cycled miles through legally. Nothing, I mean, nothing I've ever done has been um, illegal. I mean, certainly not from a government standpoint and even from the program, uh, you know, each of the individual mileage programs. They, they rarely liked what I was doing, but they could rarely pin a reason that, um, that I couldn't keep all these miles. Although every airline seems to reserve the right in their program to discharge you from the program if they sort of like don't like you. Did any of them try to throw you out? Um, nobody ever tried to throw me out. Um, United tried to bargain me. I had a program where I was working on 40 million miles to be earned, and I raised like three quarters of a million dollars to earn all these miles. And they caught on at 10 million and said, if you want to keep your 10, stop. Otherwise, you you know you run the risk of having the whole program uh, knocked down. And with Air Canada, they just would suspend my accounts and tell me that they're doing an internal investigation. And then a couple months later, when nothing came of it, I told them either I'm guilty or open the accounts. And when they didn't open the accounts, we went to the media. I felt bad about it, but they opened the accounts. <laughs> All right, so you earned 40 million miles. I guess the question is, everybody wants to know, what'd you do with them? Well, the airlines would like to think, Peter, that I brokered them. That's That was the main reason that they hated what I was doing. They kept thinking that I'm just earning all these miles to turn around and you know uh, violate their terms and conditions and broker, you know, buy and sell the miles, which I never did. Uh, I just traveled, you know, I had never been out of the United States until 2001. And now, I don't know, I've probably been to 40 or 50 countries, thanks to, thanks to my miles and often in front of the curtain in, uh, in business class. So I'm lucky, I'm blessed, whatever you want to call it. Um, I became a world traveler thanks to that marketing genius in 81 that you referenced at the beginning. 
beginning. And you do the same approach with hotels, I presume? No, actually not. You know, I'm not a big, uh, I've, I've never been a big hotel program guy in order to stay at a hotel. I like to collect hotel points to convert into airline miles, but I'm not a big hotel guy because I don't need, you know, for me, it's all ego. You know, you want to be in the lounge. I want to be on the beach. You want to, you want a, uh, a, a room that faces the beach. I'm going to spend eight hours on the beach. I don't need to be sleeping in a room on the beach. So a lot of the things that, that, that status uh, implies for hotels aren't really of interest to me. And the last place I want to be at five o'clock is not in the hotel lounge with a bunch of Americans. I want to be in town with all the locals learning what's, you know, what's going on on the ground. So for me, it's very counterintuitive the way I travel to want to play the hotel game. We're talking with Steve Belkin, the author of Mileage Maniac, 40 Million Miles. I remember that American Airlines once came up with a program also back in 1981 called the American Advantage Program, which was the Air Pass. And, you know, for $250,000, if you if you had the money and you were willing to part with $250,000, they gave you an Air Pass that this is my biggest dream, which I never, I never basically realized because I didn't have $250,000 at the time. But they would Damn. give you this, I know, they would give you this Air Pass that gave you unlimited positive space, first-class travel for life. And, uh, I mean, if I had gotten that $250,000 together, I would probably have single-handedly ended that program because I would have been living on the plane (laughs) big, living large. But a lot of people did. You know, people forget that when they did that program, there there were people out there who did have that money. A number of the L.A. Lakers, like Magic Johnson and uh, Kareem, they made it a part of their of their contract negotiation that the owner of the Lakers buy them an air pass. We had another guy named Steve Rostein who, who I did a story about on NBC years ago, who went out and got one. And uh, these and by the way, since you paid money for the air pass, your tickets were essentially paid tickets. So it was sort of like nuclear fusion. You were getting miles on an air pass, and the, uh, there are people out there racking up millions and millions of miles. Of course. American finally realized maybe this wasn't such a great idea, and one by one, they tried to throw some of these people out of the program. I mean, you, do, you, do you regret never having that pass? I do. <laughs> well, first of all, shame on American. You know, you, you, you know, you have a legal department, a marketing department, a uh, financial department. You know, when you put programs like that together, you know, you, you, ostensibly you should have done your due diligence and not have to be kicking people out after the fact. So I feel bad for anybody who got called out of their system when they, when they paid that money in good faith. So now let's talk about the present. Just about everybody listening to me today is or has been a member of an airline frequent flyer program or two, or in your case, nine. Uh, And so the question then becomes, and I asked it a little bit earlier, but I'll ask it again, you know, what do we do with our miles now? I mean, there are people out there sitting on, you know, 23 trillion miles that are out there right now that have not been redeemed, that can be redeemed officially. Yeah. So the just it's important to remember that the that, that those 23 trillion miles, the airlines were forced by the government to put a, a fixed value on it for a long time. It, that those miles were just kind of floating out there. And then some general accounting practices guy said, you, you know, you have to put a value on these. So they put a two tenths of a cent uh, value 
uh, and, and the accounting office is like, fine, that's great. So if you think about it, there's about $460 million worth of liabilities that the airlines have here. So on one hand, they want to get these, these miles off the books. So you'd think that they would want people to be redeeming like crazy. On the other hand, it kills them to give up a seat in international business class as an award ticket when they feel like they have a halfway decent chance of selling that ticket for, you know, four or five grand. We actually do the math. Uh, it becomes very clear about why these programs are still in existence. You know, American, United, and Delta make an amazing amount of money every year by selling their miles to Citibank for American and Chase for United and American Express for Delta. And they're getting between one and two billion dollars per financial institution per airline for just selling them miles that they know going in, they're not going to be redeeming. It's sort of disingenuous, but the numbers speak louder. Not sort of. Not sort of. It's disingenuous. It's okay. You can say it. All right. Well, you just did. Go ahead. No, I'm just saying. I mean, I, it's, it's disingenuous when you create at this point in time, when they know that, that they're printing miles, that they have no intention of being able to, to redeem based on the way they advertise. So, you know, United will tell you, hey, you know, you can go to Hawaii as low as 25,000 miles. But if you go onto their uh, award booking engine, you'll find 25,000 miles maybe once every four months. And, you know, it's in the middle of summer or in the middle of rainy season. You'll never find it on Christmas. You'll never find it for a family of four people. So, yeah, it's there. And, and once in a while, they'll make sure that there's an award that fits their, uh, you know, as low as criteria. But the harsh reality is, is that you're going to typically pay three to seven times as many miles for what it is that you really want. And that, and, and there's and that's the dirty little secret that, that the airlines and all the bloggers that make money off, you know, credit card affinity cards, they don't want to tell you about. They just want to tell you, like you said, Peter, hey, but I can become uh, platinum or I can get a, a bonus if I, if I have the credit card. Well, what good is the bonus, even if it's a rich bonus, if the value of that bonus is, is, is unrealizable? Okay, well, now let's do the math. For anybody listening again, and I know they're listening to this because they're all sitting at home looking at their accounts as we speak. What is their mileage actually worth? <laughs> okay, so I have a I have I have a company that actually books award travel for people who have miles and are not sure how to spend them. And it's really tragic that this company exists. That you have to pay me two hundred bucks to get something that's ostensibly a, a, a reward that the airlines are giving you for your loyalty. So right off the bat, that's really crazy, right? So I can tell you that just in the last two days, somebody wanted to use their American miles to go from Dallas to Venice in the summer in business class. And the choices of, of award seats were on the low end, 57500 with uh, three stops and, four, and it took 48 hours to get there. And on the high end, it was uh, 417,000 miles if you wanted to you know, beeline it they're, uh, you know, one stop with a, you know, two hour connection. So you tell me, is is there a value proposition there that, that's worthwhile for you? Well, let's, let's back into it. You know, you earn one mile per dollar spent on most frequent flyer programs. And if you do the math, let's go back to your 25,000 mile example. If for you to get a 25,000 mile award when 54% of all mileage earned is earned with credit card purchases, that means you've already spent $14,000 to get it, not counting the mileage that you flew on the airline to get up to 25,000 miles for a ticket that might only retail for 300 bucks. And that's assuming they want to give you the ticket. Well, or, or the ticket, again, there, there's, there, there's always a ticket that, that you'll be able to find for 25. They're, they're there, but they suck. <laughs> like I said, they're either too many stops or the routing is crazy or the connections are crazy or the, the, the date that you have to travel on isn't available or the time of day isn't available. So again, at some point, the value proposition of just taking 
out your wallet and spending three or 400 bucks on a, on a paid ticket and going exactly when you want and where you want is compelling. It used to be that you could, it used to be that the, the airlines were much looser on the purse strings of being able to get award travel. Those days are long gone. So if you and I were having this conversation 20 years ago, I would be telling your listeners, sign up for every single credit card you can, sign up for every single frequent flyer program you can, every single hotel program, do mileage runs, do uh, status matches. I mean, I would be your biggest booster and cheerleader, but um, it's not 20 years ago. The airlines, they would, they would like you to think, and the bloggers, again, are kind of complicit. They would like you to think that really not not so much has changed in the last you know 10 to 20 years, but it's, it's a sea change. So basically, stop what you're doing, go redeem as many miles as you can, as fast as you can, as far out as you can to find out what's available because it's not going to get any better. It kind of works two ways. It used to be that if you booked way far out, that that was an advantage. It's like, be the first one, you know, be the early the early bird. And then the airline started thinking, why do we want to be, you know, letting these seats go a year ahead of time when we're not really sure, you know, what the revenue uh, demand will be? So that ended up not being such a good strategy. They're not opening up so many seats early. Where they're opening up seats is at the very last minute. Like my wife is coming down to visit me in Cozumel on Friday and there's nothing on American for two months. And today she sent me a text, Steve, guess what? That goofy one-stop flight that only takes five and a half hours finally opened up at 12,500 miles instead of 52,000. So if you're willing to play chicken with the airlines, that's where I think the sweet spot is. But how many people do you know, Peter, especially if they want to go on an international two-week safari or, uh, you know, mountain trek, can afford to wait that long? My thanks to Steve, to Michelle Place, to Dina McLeod, to Ben Stewart, as well as everyone in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel and for answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, that's an easy answer. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Adaris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast. And to ask Jeff some questions, because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.